some poets, I've talked to some poets, and they feel like if people who read your poems are not taking away exactly what you felt when you wrote it, that somehow that you didn't accomplish your job. And I don't believe that way. I believe that poetry is what the person brings to it. And what that person needs to hear is what they will discover when they read my poems. Welcome to the True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome to the True Fiction Project. This is your host, Renita Hora. And for regular listeners, you know how much I love poetry, music, lyrics, anything that rhymes, anything that is about a story in verse. We've had some guests before on the show who are musicians or poets, but much, much fewer than those who write in prose. So I am absolutely thrilled to introduce today's guest, Bethel Swift. She is a San Diego-based artist, poet, indie publisher, workshop instructor, many, many things. And most importantly, the author of a wonderful book in verse called Conversations with Good Men. Bethel, thank you so much for joining us on the True Fiction Project. Thank you, Renita. I am so interested in asking you about your book because it was published a while ago in 2020. And this is a three act drama in verse. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Um, so the book focuses primarily on my dating experiences. And so I tried to structure it kind of like a play in three acts with two intermissions. One has father-daughter poems and the other has kind of the little spiritual arc because both of those influenced my dating life. I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where to begin. So when you say, when you talk about your dating life, is this comedy? Is this tragedy? Is this a blend of different genres or subgenres? That's my first question. <laughs> sure, I'd say it's definitely a blend of comedy and tragedy. I started dating very late in life. I was raised as an evangelical Christian, and I kind of had the idea in my head that God was just supposed to, you know, drop the right guy into my lap. And I didn't have to do things like date, you know, it was just the right guy was going to come along, God was going to send him. So at some point, pretty late in life, I realized, oh, you actually have to go on dates, and you actually have to spend time with people and find out what your deal breakers are and find out what um, things really are important to you and find out what things you thought were important to you that aren't important to you and you have to risk and all that. And so that's kind of what the journey is about. And I didn't actually to date too terribly long. I started it late in life and then I got married probably three years later. So it's kind of a short period. But yeah, that's kind of what it's all about. So, I mean, this just ties into the lives of so many people because there are so many people, men, women out there that go through this and I don't know if you have to be evangelical Christian to believe that God will drop some perfect partner into your life. <laughs> I think it's at some true. level. Yeah, so many of us believe this. So it's really interesting to hear 
that you took your own personal experience and turned it into story. I guess what propelled you to do that? I think initially I wrote poems as, you know, just a kind of private practice for myself. I've always wanted to be a writer, always wanted to be a published writer, published author, but I didn't until I got to the point right before I published the book where I had sort of like an internship. There's a program with the AWP program, which is the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. They have a writer to writer mentorship program for people who don't have MFAs. And I applied for that and was accepted. And kind of around that point is when I realized that what the writing that I had most ready for publication was all poetry. And then I realized that most of the better poems were about dating and really this theme of like what is a good guy because that's something I explore very much in the book is people really like to put people into different camps you know like these are good guys these are bad guys you know there's no in between and that's a concept I really wanted to explore is like what is good can somebody be a good person but really mess up pretty badly that sort of thing. And I do address, have a trigger warning kind of on the book, and I do address uh, sexual assault in the book in the context of date rape and kind of wanted to explore that idea as well, where people assume that it only happens in dark alleys with strangers and not people where you've had trust built up between the two for some time. So I wanted to address that as well. So... What is that in between, Bethel? What did you find in your explorations? I would say, you know, there's no, it's it's not a book that provides the answer, of course. It's more just an exploration. And it's always interesting to me when people read it, what they bring to it. I've had some evangelical Christian, because I am no longer a Christian, but I still obviously have relationships with plenty of people who are. And I've had some of those people come to me and say that certain poems like reinforced their faith. And they felt like that's exactly what I was saying was kind of reinforcing that message. And I'm not mad that that's the takeaway. You know, Um, I think some people, some poets, I've talked to some poets, and they feel like if people who read your poems are not taking away exactly what you felt when you wrote it, that somehow that, that you didn't accomplish your job. And I don't believe that way. I believe that Poetry is what the person brings to it, and what that person needs to hear is what they will discover when they read my poems. Bethel, later on in the episode, of course, you're going to be reading from your book, but can you give us an example about one of these poems or some of these conversations, and what are the kinds of things that you explored? Sure. So one thing would kind of be like expectations. I'm going to reference a poem that I'm not going to read, but it is a poem about my father when I went to go purchase my first vehicle with my father. And I brought him along thinking like when I was a child, obviously I went along whenever the family bought a vehicle and he was always this like really firm negotiator and he wasn't going to let anybody pull anything on him. And so I thought, okay, I need to bring him when I buy my car. And then he turned into a total pushover for the experience. And he was just kind of like, what are you talking about? Like, this guy's a nice guy. Like, why are you being so, I don't know what the word is, like, not antagonistic, but just like reserved and and not trusting of this individual. So it's one of the more comedic poems in the book. But that's kind of also what we do when we go out in the dating field is we're kind of like, I expect you to be this and that. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with Esther Perel. Yeah. Yeah. And and I loved one of the things she says, I didn't know it when I was writing the book, but I've read it since, um, is just that 
basically how in this day and age we expect our partners to be everything. We expect them to be lovers, best friend, the person you can tell anything, the person, you know, your hobbies, like you want to share everything with that person. And she's kind of talks about how that puts really unrealistic and kind of high pressure expectations on relationships. So I think that's kind of one of the things that I address in the book is just that expectation of like going out with someone and expecting one thing or another talk about like my first kiss and how that person like was somebody I had a crush on and I thought oh this is finally it you know and then I find out that he just wanted just sex and that's it so just most of the book is things like that just the little twist and change in expectations but it is all the reason it's called conversations with good men is it's kind of done in a conversational style, mostly in the context of real conversations that were had or imagined conversations that I, you know, when you're rethinking things after the event, like, oh, what if it had went this way or what, maybe this is what that person was really saying. So that's kind of an idea. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah. And it leads to another question. I'm glad you mentioned your father because you said that the whole of the first act maybe is dedicated to the conversations with him. I think it's the first intermission. Yes, the first intermission. So the first portion of the book is dedicated to conversations with your father. And I have to ask, in a book about dating, why were you bringing conversations with your father into it? How did that impact the rest of the book and sort of the arc in general? Sure. So basically, I think our relationship with our fathers impacts, you know, what we're looking for, what we expect in another person. I love my father dearly. Um, so I'm not trash talking him, but he, and he knows that he was a person who raised his voice quite often um, when we were growing up. So I felt pretty adamantly like that I did not want someone who was going to raise their voice at me. But on the other hand, you can see kind of in some of our interactions, the way that he was not very demonstrative with his love in a verbal sense. And he kind of drove a hard line with his expectations of us. But then when when situations would really, like, for example, when my health tanked and he had to drive, I have a poem about him driving me to the ER when the rubber hit the road or whatever the expression is, he would actually come through for me. And so I think that was something that, you know, stuck in my brain, like it's someone who's going to come through for you, who's going to be there for you, but not necessarily someone who's going to, you know, say all the nice things. Oh, you're so beautiful. Or you're so, you know, so it's just those little, I think fathers really lay the groundwork, whether they intend to or not for what we expect and what we, what we know love to look like, if that makes sense. Yes, it makes a lot of sense. Very well put. I mean, fathers do lay the groundwork. And I'm curious to ask, do you mean, do you think, do you mean specifically that fathers lay the groundwork for daughters or for their kids in general, whoever they're going to date and whoever they're going to develop relationships with? Sure. You know, I can't speak to that myself just because I don't have the proper psychological training. I know that somebody had a theory about, I think that mothers, oh, I don't remember what it was, but it was some some aspect that mothers teach us and, and a different aspect that fathers teach us. And I think it was either any of the genders. So I can only speak to my experience, but I mm-hmm. just think it, particularly as a daughter, I had in my head certain things like, oh, I don't want this. And I 
do want this. For example, my father works with, you know, works with his hands. He was in construction for much of his life. And so that, you know, I just have this like bias in my head that like, if you work with your hands and you're a real man, you know, like just things like that, Mm -hmm. that you just Mm -hmm. can't shake that just come through, I guess. It's very interesting what you say. I remember my mother telling me that when she married my father, he he didn't smoke. And she thought, how is he a real man if he doesn't smoke? And I thought years later, (laughs) that is such an odd way to sort of define what a real man is. But I guess times were very different then. (laughs) That's Um, that's very true. Yeah. So as we transition forward, before we transition forward into your reading, tell us a little bit about the pieces you are going to read and what part of the book they refer to or which characters or whatever you would like to tell us. Sure. I think there will be time to read two. So the first one that I will be reading is called The Artist Takes Herself on a Date. And it's one of the first poems in the book. And to me, it just kind of represents the full journey as well as the kind of independent feminism that is throughout the book in this sense of like the lessons that I've learned and how I will be going on, you know, myself and a stronger version of myself having learned, you know, lessons. But also it has the romantic thread of, you know, maybe reminiscing about a past moment. So without further ado, let's listen to the first piece. The artist takes herself on a date. And I, who looked for only God, found thee. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Sonnet 27. Was it pure chance or a Freudian slip? This night, I chose to wear the same black and blue, deep-pocketed dress, woe-woven scarf, glossed ebony Mary Janes, push-up bra, and unlucky lace-trimmed underwear to the Cadillac Palace, the theater where we saw the Book of Mormon. There, your interest in me waned, even as my love for you began, displacing my faith in God and man, their co-authored books, letters, and works of fiction. Tonight, I lean into no one, as I watch dancers whose sheathed torsos heaving between sets remind me to release my held breath. Still holding all else in, Memories of your smile, your spicy aftershave, your neatly ironed slacks, your surprised laughter, guiding hand at my back, and your eyes, warm stars in my long, dark night. Well, Bethel, okay, I can see how... These conversations are really coming to light. That was amazing. And where is this leading to? So what is the second piece you're going to read? So the second piece is called Potpourri Rain. And that is the one that one of the poems that addresses the sexual assault. And it was really important to me in both poems that um, that represent that to give a really full picture of the other individual, the man that was involved. And I think some people don't understand that, but it is 
it was really important to me to put the reader in my shoes to see why I might have trusted this person, see how they were this, but they were also this, and, you know, just kind of give a really full representative picture to really give that complexity, I guess. And to show another poet who does this really well is Jennifer Gavon. I hope I'm pronouncing her name properly. But she kind of talks about that too, how women will sometimes behave very unexpectedly or, you know, after an assault, like still being friends with that person or still trying to please that person. And it can take days, months, years sometimes before women realize, oh, wait a second, like, no, you really did me wrong. And I really didn't want to see that so bad. I was willing to, to put it on me, but it wasn't me, you know, if that makes any sense. Perfect sense. So this is the one that comes with a trigger warning. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Wonderful. Bethel, let's hear it. Potpourri rain. Four dozen long-stemmed, dethorned, blood-red roses cut down for you to apologize without words. Breathing in their fragrance, I recall a magic formula for happy relationships. Count ten blessings for each complaint. Mathematically speaking, I am supposed to save us. For Isabel, the tiny shell you brought back for me from flight school, for the Tupperware full of chocolate kiss sugar cookies I baked for your return. For that ugly, oversized, I can fly t-shirt you thought I might like for a nightgown. For the blisters I earned hunting with you for that one gnarly bridge downtown. For your fear of snakes, my bravery at karaoke, and our mutual impotence at shuffleboard. For your skill at piloting the Romeo and Juliet, and yet not being able to close its door. For those photos you weren't ready for me to take and the kisses I wasn't ready to give. For the too much, too soon thrill of you claiming me by naming me your Jan. And now for these with all your love. But what of the sanctity of letting one's yes be yes? Their no, no. Trust is a fickle thing, a fragile thing, a patternless puzzle of a thing with no aeronautical charts known to men and not enough parachutes for women. The morning after things fell apart, I hugged your Buddha belly to me. Your shoulders slumped in defeat, knowing you'd knowingly hurt me. We agreed in silence. In the following days, you tried to cheer us up, joking about chastity belts, blaming beer, and maybe just a little bit, Latke Beautiful, the beautiful girl. You promised next time to be you, sincere, kind, patient, and gentle. Tonight, I light a candle your peace offering press between my palms and make next time promises to you. To rise up in radiant robes of dropity, thwarting your attempts with my endless dignity. To leave and look back only to laugh last, shedding no tears when the final bloom dies. To crush and release it as fragrant ashes, falling like foolish Icarus from the sky. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. 
it sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. Wow, that was powerful, Bethel. Oh my goodness. Joking about chastity belts and references to Draupadi. Uh, uh, wow, leaves me sort of with chills down my spine. Thank you for sharing. I know that our listeners are going to be looking forward to reading more of your work. So let us know where we can find out more about this particular book, Conversations with Good Men, and your other work in general. Sure, absolutely. The best place is always going to be my website, which is just www.bethelswift.com. Um, so that's B-E-T as in Tom, H-E-L as in Lucy, and then Swift like Taylor Swift. I used to be able to reference the author Swift, but now everybody only knows Taylor. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then on most social media, especially Instagram is where I'm probably most active and that it is made by Bethel Swift. That's my handle there. Fantastic. Well, Taylor Swift is not a bad reference at all. I mean, you know, can't <laughs> complain about that. And I apologize. I have been calling you Bethel, but I'm understanding now it's Bethel. Oh, it's quite all right. I accept all uh, pronunciation. <laughs> oh, dear. <You laughs> totally terrible. Fine. Well, Bethel, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the True Fiction Project. It was a complete honor. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. I am your host, Renita Hora. Here at the True Fiction Project, we are always looking for great stories that make for compelling fiction. So, if you have a great story or know somebody who does, or if you are a writer who would like to contribute, then please do get in touch with us at renita.com forward slash contact. Thank you for listening to the True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. Thank you.